This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. Entrepreneur and fashion designer Anya Heimarch is the queen of practicality. The bags for which her eponymous label is famous have long been adored for their pockets, compartments, zips, and the fact they're not weighed down with hardware. I mean, seriously, who wants a bag that's too heavy to carry when it's empty? It's that super sensible but fun creative approach that saw her lauded as Accessories Designer of the Year at the British Fashion Awards. So it's no surprise that her never-fail piece of advice, if in doubt, wash your hair, has become the title of her first book, part manual, part memoir, part business book, and all Let's Be Avenue. It also sums her up perfectly, light-hearted on the surface, yet with a fiercely commonsensical core. If there's one thing that drives a business, it's emotion. That's what drives the culture and the passion and the, the striving. And you join me over Zoom, where else, to talk self-doubt and learning to have faith in your own ability, bringing inclusivity and responsibility to the fashion industry, why emotion is a female superpower, being proudly not cool, and why she's passionate about pockets. Anya, thank you so much for coming on The Shift. It's, it's such a long time since since we've seen each other. I miss you. I miss friends. I miss our gatherings, our industry. I miss, miss it all. I'm really craving it now. I think it's, we're at the end now. The end's in sight. Something's happened to my camera, so it looks like I'm a Sony knit, we've decided, which feels very chic, but I'm, I can see you, but you can't see me. Well, I don't even know what you call that yeah. thing when you've just got <laughs> loads of lines, but they're very stylish, Sony-esque lines. Um, your lovely book, If In Doubt, Wash Your Hair, part manual, part memoir, part business book. Right at the beginning, you say you're a very private person and quite shy. So what made you think, I know, I'll sit down and write a memoir? 
I don't see it as a memoir, but it's certainly very personal. And so, you know what, it was actually, I think, sort of getting to that 5.0 age, I'm now 52. And it was also partly because I sold a bit of my business and had a really unfun time and we bought it back in 2019. And it taught me a lot, that experience, actually. And I think that it made me realize that you know more than you think or that you dare believe. And I just wish, like everyone who gets to 50, kind of that, you know, I'd known more of that when I was younger. And I just think that there's this lovely moment now where, you know, people are talking about mental health, they're being much more open about how they're feeling or coping or, you know, doubt. And I just thought, I'm just going to write it as it is, just to to say openly, honestly, this is what I think, this is what I've learned, this is what I wish I'd known, this is what I still struggle with. Um, because I think actually that kind of, you know, hopefully the kind of kindness of sharing, you know, hopefully just, you know, might help someone else who's at that stage of trying to grow a business or, you know, blend a modern family or be a woman in business or an entrepreneur or creative sort of, you know, thinking, ah, how will I come up with another idea? Or, you know, so I think all that doubt washes around your brain. And I think it's it's really, I hope, helpful just to be really honest about it and show that you can push through. Uh, and if you don't, it's also okay. So I just decided just to kind of vomit it all on a page, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it's very elegant vomit, sure. <laughs> beautifully put and I would expect no less um well I just think it's interesting you know I think that certainly I listen to my kids talking about mental health the whole time but I also think experience matters actually and um and I think honesty matters I think it's really important to be honest and I think that so often you know our industry the fashion industry seems so sort of distant and and weird and and perhaps exclusive and actually I just wanted to talk about it from my perspective so so yes I, I suppose it's probably just one of those things I just decided to do and um I also think you know it's important to to state your values and you know to to be open and I think you can do good stuff whilst also feeling doubtful doubt's a funny thing isn't it and actually the, the title if in doubt wash your hair came about because everyone always says what's your best bit of advice you know for a busy woman or a working mom or whatever and I always say you know what if in doubt wash your hair it's one of those things that you know can just change your day which is so trivial and silly but what is it it does it just because you feel better about yourself or but it also talks about doubt that word doubt and I think that everyone suffers doubt and it's part of achieving isn't it really so that's a book about doubt I suppose let's talk about doubt because um you say that the aim is to help people live our most doubt-free lives do you think that's even possible no not completely I think if you don't have doubt when you're pushing yourself you know normal everyday life things then I don't think you're you're going to sort of you know be the best you can so I think doubt is is part of the course but not debilitating doubt, or at least enough doubt that, you know, this is a healthy, balanced amount of doubt. And there's, there's definitely doubt when it's just actually it's taking you down and that's no fun and we've all been there. So it's trying to find that balance, but accepting that some doubt means that you're pushing and you're achieving and you're striving, which is great. And doubt can be really exciting. I think I talk about in the book about someone once saying to me that actually um, when you're scared, you actually have to reframe it and realize that fear is the same emotion as excitement. And actually, I think that, that really helped me to just relook at it. So I think doubt is, is a good thing in many ways. It's exciting. But there's also managing it and trying to recognize what's good doubt and bad doubt. I had actually noted that down because I remember before we launched the pool and I remember speaking to you on the phone and you saying, and it really lodged in my brain that fear is the flip of excitement. And so, you know, just always remember that if you're terrified, just around the opposite side of that is exhilaration. I think it really is true. And it certainly helped me that because I had a, a I mean, debilitating fear of public speaking really um, was frightened. I used to want to 
to sing as a career actually and I just had one really bad sort of traumatic um, performance that didn't didn't go well and it just took me so long to get over it and I did something called NLP neurolinguistic programming which is a sort of you know amazing exercise where they take you through sort of what happened and sort of scrub it from your brain he was this amazing man who explained this idea of actually I know you're you're really really scared but actually you're really excited because probably you you quite want to do it and it just actually really helped me and certainly helped me with with sort of public speaking since so you know you can reframe it your brain's very clever actually there were two pieces of advice that I was given that really stuck in my head and really helped me you know even in the worst of times and yours was one and the other one was just remember all advice is just someone else's opinion (laughs) brilliant those, those two things just really helped the other bit of advice I love someone gave me a lovely Oscar Wilde quote which I love which is be yourself the other places had already taken and I think that's also really nice a nice bit of advice that's one I sort of write in my, my list sometimes and just look at how long did it take you to get to that point that point of being comfortable being yourself well I think 50 was a bit of a turning point and I think that I suppose to a certain extent having conquered some of those fears gives you in some senses the confidence to to sort of start to trust yourself so there is a sort of process so even if someone says don't doubt in a way until you've scaled a few mountains that felt very scary but you did plant the flag and you kind of got to the top so you can then tell yourself look you didn't you know you didn't mess up you did it it was okay that does of course help I think to um, get through it so it does take time and it does take a bit of experience it's not like something someone can just tell you and you can do but I think it's at least if you go on that journey knowing that you will feel the doubt you will feel that you can't do it you will have imposter syndrome all those things that everyone everyone has especially people at the top of their game I think then at least you kind of you push on knowing it's it's not just you and I think that's the point one of the things that I've noticed quite a lot of younger women on social media talking about lately but I know lots of older women feel too how do you stop you know you think okay this is what I want to do so you launch business or you you know write a book or whatever but instead of enjoying that you're moving on to the next thing have you managed to crack that um, no. <laughs> um, sorry. I mean, certainly if you launch a business, you need to focus on what you're doing rather than the next new toy. And we're all guilty of that. I'm guilty of that too. And sometimes it's just like stick with the knitting, you know, lean in and because and, it's, it's much more fun starting a new business than it is necessarily driving the success of one that you've already established. So that is a discipline probably one has to just kind of like suck up and do. For me, you know, a journey of a business in a way is a bit like sailing. And I'm not a sailor, so it's a terrible analogy, but you're going from A to B, but you don't go in a straight line. You go a bit left, you tack a bit right, you tack a bit left. You know, it's it's this zigzaggy journey. So I think that you have to expect that in the same way that I think, you know, people say, have you ever made any mistakes? I'm like, I only make mistakes. I mean, in a way, it's a series of mistakes and corrections that pull you through. I mean, you never only always make the right decisions. That's just, it's not a linear line that. And I think you know, equally, you have to be really ready, especially as an entrepreneur, I think with your own business, you, you know, you're quite sort of vulnerable, you know, put your head above the parapet, your name's above the door, you have to be quite ready to take the criticism or the knocks or, you know, it won't all be just, you know, a bed of roses, of course. So I think, yeah, I'm not quite sure that answers your question, but I think it is it's never a straight line. And, and it's always striving and making mistakes and a sort of big patchwork of of muddle that somehow gets the right end result. I think you describe it as an ant wiggle in the book, don't you? Which an ant wiggle. actually a really good description of it although ants are very fast obviously but (laughs) (laughs) well the ant wiggle actually I do talk about the ant wiggle and for me that's more that sometimes I think we're all 
so busy and I'm so busy and I'm so stressed and I'm, you know, today I've got a million things on, a million meetings and it's just, things not saving lives, right? So it's it's lovely busy. And I think sometimes I look at the ants when you look at a sort of loads of little ants going around, they all look busy, but actually how much of that's important. And that just for me was a lovely bit of perspective about, you know, frankly, my, my day as an ant wiggle, you know, I'm not Sarah Gilbert today. I'm not, I'm not doing anything massively significant. Um, that perspective is important sometimes. So you started your business at 18 and then you stepped down as chair and CEO and creative director in 2011 and brought in a, I suppose, career CEO is the best way of putting it, isn't it? And then you brought it back in 2019 and decided you wanted to be CEO again. I mean, I'm fascinated in that for all sorts of reasons. But can you tell me a bit about what it was that made you think, no, I am the right person to run my home business? Well, when I stepped aside from the CEO role, I mean, the business was growing really fast and it was, you know, spread all over the world. Uh, it's still spread all over the world. You know, five children. It was just a really, really busy phase. And I felt that in order to let the business, you know, to continue growing, that perhaps it would be a good idea to bring in a real pro who's done it before. And for me also to just really focus entirely on the creative role, because I felt inevitably when you're running a business that when you're spread across so many sort of things that if you're not careful, the product can be sort of three degrees to the left in career and three degrees to the right in, in New York. And I just wanted to kind of put my arms around the whole thing and just really sort of pull it back and make it sort of squeaky clean and, and coherent. And also to have more time on the creativity, honestly, because it's, you know, you, it's funny when you start a business, when you're running a business as well, which pretty much you are when you're starting a small business at the beginning, you know, you spend so little time on design, you know, most of your time is dealing with the the broken photocopier or you know when the business gets bigger you're dealing with people all the time and you're traveling and it's just a huge amount of work so I really want to go back to that um, creative role um, so we brought in a, a CEO long story short when I um, brought the business back with a fantastic partner I realized I missed running my business actually and my team and, and a business really is so much about people and culture and and you know that spirit that lovely sort of spirit that kind of gets you through you know you have the big wins you have the sort of scary moments where you're stuck in Tokyo and everything goes wrong and you're trying to salvage something in the business center and you know there's moments you're sitting in airports absolutely depleted with exhaustion or or a big show and it you know something falls down you know it's just there's so many highs and, and lows it's so much fun and I just missed actually leading the team I think that's one of the things I really like doing as, as a role so yes we decided to buy it back um, and that was a really good moment. Just asking for a friend I was really interested in whether you kind of hit this point in your life you know 50-ish when you started to feel quite okay, this is me and I'm quite comfortable with that. And you looked at the business and thought, do you know what? I am a good person to run this business. I don't need a professional to run the business. I am a professional. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, I think, I think that sort of sums it up. There's a funny thing that as a woman, perhaps, and as someone who's started a business, founded a business, never been to business school, never went to university, that perhaps felt, you know, there's someone more professional than me to do this, who has all the experience and not dissing professional people at all because you know, they're, they're brilliant. But actually, frankly, I'm professional. I've done it. I've done it from yes. the grassroots <laughs> up um, and actually trained on the job. And probably there's no one more qualified to, to lead the team that I've chosen. And actually, you know, as I said earlier, you know a lot more than you think. And I think that also founders are very qualified because you have to be pretty dexterous. You have to be, you know, a pretty good problem solver, you know, and have to be a pretty good people person. Um, and you've risked your own money. You know, you've taken risks. You're actually, you know, really backing yourself. A professional comes in, they're paid a lot of money to join. They're paid a lot of money to be there and sometimes paid a lot of money to go. You know, it's the, yeah. it's, it's a, it's the different, there's not the same risk profile. So I, I think that actually it's definitely a bit of a thing. And I have lots and lots of friends in similar situation to me who 
you know, have been advised, you need to get in the pros now and let them grow the business. And, you know, that, that stage of founder-led companies, in order to kind of grow, you need to, to get in the pros. And actually, I think that a lot of people sort of fall foul of that, actually. And in fact, what you probably need is a great group of people underneath you, which I have, you know, great COO, a really great, you know, commercial director, just really good teams who can relieve you of the stuff you don't need to do, but you actually stay the figurehead, but you delegate down. So I think that's probably a better route. And talking to lots of friends, actually, I've seen people go both ways. And mostly that second route, I think, tends to work better. Unless a company is sort of started with with that sort of professional kind of infrastructure, you know, I, I think a lot of founders lose out or don't have a very fun time and the business doesn't tend to do very well if you're not sort of staying very involved and leading it somehow. But listen, there's loads of ways to do it. I'm not saying my route is the right way, but it certainly made me realize that actually I know more than I think. It, um, that was something I, I think was a nice takeout for me. Yeah, I mean, I've been sitting here nodding furiously and really thinking that received wisdom that the founder is not the person to run the business after the first couple of years is quite damaging or can be quite damaging. I mean, every case is different. I have a personal interest, obviously. No, sure. And I, I think that's, a, you know, being a woman plays into that a bit as well, because, you know, we've had fantastic investors. I mean, so lucky. And But sometimes there's a pressure to, you know, come on, you need to kind of get in the big guns now. And actually, you don't necessarily, actually. I think doing it in a really authentic way with a great group of people around you and where you need to sub and to, you know, I mean, absolutely get in the experts. There's loads of areas in my business that is that just not my thing, not my interest or what I'm not good at. And you get in a, a brilliant person and they do that. So just, just pull in great people. And if you get a great team who will love working together, that's actually a really winning formula. So I think do what's right. There's a million different ways of doing it. But for me, it was the wrong, the wrong route. And, um, and I'm really happy I'm sort of back in this route. Uh, so yeah, a bit of a full circle. Oh, well, at least you got there. That's great. You mentioned being a woman in a, a kind of a startup environment, albeit in a fairly female industry. Have you found that an advantage or a disadvantage? To be honest, mostly I've always found it an advantage. I don't think about gender. I mean, I might for the first five minutes, but actually afterwards, it's, is someone good? Is someone brave, strong, kind, talented? That's what I think about. And I, I forget whether, you know, what they look like and, and what they, what sort of gender they are. Certainly when I first started, you know, I had a few sort of dodgy male suppliers and you've got a bit of, you know, but you have to sort of work with And certainly in certain countries, you know, perhaps more sort of male dominated sort of countries, you know, I remember one trip to somewhere where they were very much talking to my husband and not me. And actually in one trip, my son came with me and they were talking to him and not me. And that was fascinating. Oh, great. <laughs> okay. But, you know, you either, you know, hopefully start to answer some questions and they start to kind of treat with you or if it doesn't work, you realize that you're probably not a good partner anyway. So you sort of find your way through. But I think mostly I found an advantage, actually, because I think, you know, often I've been the only woman in the room and that, that's quite a privilege. But there are times, I think there was one moment I talk about in the book where someone said something to me and they, it was a bit unfair, actually, and I was upset about it and sort of said, I, I don't think this is right. And they said, Annie, you have to take the emotion out of this. And actually, I, it made me laugh because, in fact, if there's one thing that drives a business, it's emotion. That's what drives the culture and the passion and the, the striving. And that emotion is what makes product. It's, you know, it has to have emotions. It doesn't, doesn't relate to a customer. So it, actually, now I, I realize that I think emotion is, is frankly, a, a female superpower. So I, I embrace emotion. I'd actually written that down, that Anya, you have to take the emotion out of this. Because when I read that, it really brought me up short because it's so passive aggressive. I mean, Anya, 
for a start, yeah, using yeah. your name. Exactly. Can you imagine anybody doing that to a man apart from anything else? I know. So I always talk about when people use the name. It's so funny because it is very passive aggressive. That people do it all the time. It's really fascinating. But also, yes, you're right. It is interesting that it comes from a place when I think someone has nothing else in the locker, truthfully, because it, it's a low blow. And I, I mean, I work with men and love working men, so I'm not men bashing you at all. And I want absolutely want lots of men in my company. It really is great having all sexes and genders. But I think that it is sometimes a sort of it's it's if that's what they've got left, that's what they, they throw out. And it's it's pretty inexcusable. Um, so I think a little wry smile is what I do now. Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? It does get used against women by a certain sort of man, like you say, a kind of man who's like reaching the bottom of his locker. Um, you know, you're hysterical or bossy or strident or emotional. And I love that you say emotion is a female superpower, you know, being in touch with that. Well, really... actually, it's really interesting. I think EQ and your EQ, IQ, obviously old debate, but I mean, I think I would think women do have that in spades. And I think that actually in business, that is, if you had to choose, and hopefully you don't, but that is probably the more important one. And I think, you know, emotion is key to that. I mean, how can you read people if you don't sort of sense emotion? So um, no, I'm, I'm all for um, emotion, <laughs> even tears occasionally, <laughs> but not often. <laughs> Since you mentioned that, have you cried in front of your staff? Yeah, I have actually. I have, absolutely. Um, I think when someone was not well and I was having to explain uh, about that. I mean, I think it's not, you don't want to be the weepy boss, do you? It doesn't sort of <laughs> inspire. Yeah. But I think it's absolutely right if, something, if something's sad to, to have a tear and to, to, you know, to choke up. I think it wouldn't be normal otherwise, would it? I mean, it would be just awful. Um, so, yeah, I, I think vulnerability is a really good thing. The whole backdrop to my career, which has been sort of women in the workplace and, and pushing forward. And I think to a certain extent there was, you know, can I be the same as a man was the first way to kind of get through that first wave. Mm. And now I think that actually, you know, women are gaining confidence and sort of saying, no, actually it can be our way. I, as a woman, believe in emotion and, you know, being authentic and saying I'm vulnerable. I'm not sure of the answer to this. And I found that in leading my team, that wherever I've said, you know what, I'm not quite sure that we're going to go here, but you know, what, I'm going I'm to try this way. And it doesn't work well. And showing vulnerability is, I think, actually takes the team with you. And actually, it's more authentic, frankly, than than being that strong, you know, sort of banker guy, the sort of, you know, the, the male model that we had suddenly through my career of that, you know, very strong man, mm. um, you know, working all night and whatever it took and, you know, shaving in the office and not showing any emotion. And I think that's, you know, I think that's crumbling. And that's great. It's also not great for men, <laughs> by the way. So it's, it's really interesting. So I think a bit, a bit of vulnerability is, is really important. Just being honest is important. People see through anything else, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I remember early on in my editing career being told by my boss, what was important, even if I didn't know what the answer was to pretend I did to make them, you know, the management believe that I knew. And I took that on board for such a long time. And it's only really in the last five, six years that I've realized, actually, that was a really bad lesson to learn. I couldn't agree more, but I, I mean, it's a fine line. You want a competent leader. You want someone to kind of go, this is what I believe in. This is where we're going. Right, guys, this, you know, let's break it down. We're going to go there and we're going to ring the bell when we get there and it's all going to be great. So you want someone who believes in their, you know, the courage of their convictions. But I think you also want honesty because between here and there, there are going to be setbacks. And so I think it's about being honest through those. So it's sort of a fine line, I think. But I, I think not showing any emotion and not admitting to be vulnerable or, or not being sure, is, it seems dishonest. And I think you lose people a bit if you're not honest. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. 
Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why fashion? I mean, this is a massive compliment. You're not careful. You're not fashion, are you? No, I'm not fashion. You're too nice to be fashion. Well, nice is a terrible word. No, I I'm, mean, I'm going to take, take that as a massive compliment. I just don't care about being cool. I'm not very. I'm very not cool. I'm passionate about fashion for how it makes you feel. Does that make sense? I I care about beautifully made things. I'm fascinated by craft. I'm fascinated by giving beautiful personalized presents. I'm fascinated by making things that make people feel the best version of themselves. So that can be fashion and often is fashion. That's what fashion should be, I think, actually. What I don't like about fashion is where it's that sort of tribal thing of are you in our club or are you not, where it, where it feels very sort of um, exclusive. And I don't like fashion when it's just about brand and showing off and look at me, I'm sort of so rich. So those two bits of fashion I don't like. I love fashion where you put something on and it's a form of self-expression. It's a form of actually just you walking into a room and feeling dynamite looking them in the eye and delivering the best you know as I said version of yourself so I think you know that is that what is fashion I mean you know how do you how do you define fashion for me that's what it is um but do I care about having the latest look and and you know having relentless numbers of new clothes and and wrecking our planet no that's that's I think it's not appropriate so I think for me I've never liked that brand showy off are you in the club or not in the club fashion that's not cool I don't think I don't think being cool is cool anywhere to be honest that that's the last thing I care about I do care about nice things beautifully made things craftsmanship self-expression and you doing what the hell you want that makes you feel great and for me that's what fashion should be and I think we're in a time now where there's two things there's the environment that is going to be a massive factor in fashion because this relentless push for new 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 and you know you've got last season's things is wholly inappropriate in my view so how does fashion navigate that and also this inclusive really important inclusivity which is so fundamental to people's mental health but just about what's fair you know I mean I think that it's so important that whatever your skin color size however you want to be that you should be allowed to be yourself and you don't have to just dress like everyone else so those things are going to be I think a lot more sensible going forward and I think common sense needs to really you know find find its sort of strength in fashion so I think it's going to change so I don't know I mean of course fashion will still continue in many ways exactly as it has but I, I just think it does need a bit of a rain check as happens in any industry and I think if you look at some of the waste in fashion much of it's so lovely but not right anymore <laughs> you know the relentless trips and 
crazy amounts of spend on things that last for four minutes and pushing people for new, new, new and constant change and most of it going on sale and then some of it even being burnt. I mean, just not even go there. You know, it's, it's not right. So it needs a reset. So that's great. Will you go back to doing shows? No. So in fact, we are opening on May 17th. I'm really excited about this. A little village. So our original store in um, Pont Street, which was my first ever store in London, which has a bespoke little world housed in it. We're opening five stores all around it in Pont Street, including a little cafe. I want to put all our kind of creative energy, of which we have lots, into this little world that our customer can visit because I think Fashion Week is lovely and it's heaven as an artistic, you know, expression of, of what we do. It's just lovely to show the world, you know, doing those shows for me was so exciting. You get a cave the absolute kind of context and world and, and journey and, and it's an immersive experience. People came away knowing what you were trying to say with all that would be content. But it was for seven minutes and it was for huge bills. And frankly, it was exclusive. You know, people who are customers mm -hmm. couldn't come. So they felt excluded. Also, most of the time, you know, it was six months in advance of anyone being able to buy anything, which is also kind of yes. <laughs> frustrating. Like, what were we doing? So it was very clear to me that that all had to change. So we moved away from shows, sadly, because, you know, as a sort of creative expression, it was exciting for me. But we moved to doing more sort of civic projects like sort of the Chubby Hearts, the Chubby Cloud, things that can involve our customers and the public and could we could immerse the, them in our brand and, and our values that way and then I really sort of settled on opening this little village which will be where I will be having a, a really nice coffee uh, and lunch and sort of having all these little stores changing and being things that you can't get online because actually ultimately retail is still such an important thing and I'm craving going to shop and I'm not a huge shopper but I just want I want to be stimulated and inspired in the way that you can't you know just looking at a screen the whole time. God, me too. Right? <laughs> yeah, just to go and browse and have a coffee. And oh, yeah. I miss that so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because so I want to make these like little galleries. So for me, I can then put all my sort of creative energy there. Uh, and it feels a bit more sustainable than these things that you're doing, these massive bills. And then you're just kind of basically chucking mm -hmm. them the next day, which we always obviously tried to make sure that they went um, were all recycled and so on. But it just, it feels more sustainable. And so it's sort of back to our roots. I think that my whole career, our whole career, has all been about globalization, hasn't it? The word mm -hmm. that has been the backdrop to our careers has been globalization, you know. Growth at any cost. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, sourcing from supply chains from all over the world and selling all over the world. And, we, you know, we've got stores in Tokyo and all over Japan and Hong Kong. And we've had them in Malaysia and Singapore and New York and you know, just all over the world and on planes constantly. And actually, I just think this next sort of decade is going to be about localization. You know, you can digitally reach the world. And of course, I really think it's important people hopefully carry on traveling in a way that doesn't wreck the environment. But I think travel is important for lots of reasons. It's the best education. It's incredibly important for peace, all those sorts of things. But I think that actually just becoming a bit more local, we source our food more locally. It's about applying common sense, isn't it really? So I think that's going to be a big shift. You've used the phrase common sense a few times and I, I just think <laughs> that no, it sums you up and that, you know, the, it's like the, your bags, they combine fun and they're beautiful, but underlying that is just the most spectacular practicality. I'm obsessed by function. I mean, in a nerdy way, and um, there's a whole chapter on organising the book. I know, yes. <laughs> it more than Didn't I'm surprise like, me at all. Franking about I feel like such a loser. I really am a loser on this one. But I, I, I really sort of get excited by organisation. And um, and ultimately, if you think about it, a handbag, I think the reason I like handbags, handbags are just about taking stuff you need with you when you leave the house. That's what a handbag's about. Uh, and of course, it's become this vehicle for, you know, status, hasn't it? Which is a bit I hate. Mm. I love the vehicle for self-expression and craftsmanship, exciting, but status, not so much. But ultimately, also, something that works and that's why we love our phones don't we because they are our cameras and they're our wallets literally there's 17 things that we would have had in our handbags 20 years ago a camera a diary 
a photo brag book, you know, et cetera, which was all combined to this one little tiny brilliant thing. And so for me, things that work, you know, we actually have a collection of bags we call Bags That Work that are about nerdy function are really exciting. And I used to be as a child obsessed by, <laughs> this is really embarrassing, by the back of the Sunday Times magazine, they used to have these adverts for the sort of the travel bag, you know, which if you unzipped a section, there was a place for <laughs> your passport. It's embarrassing, yeah. It, thank you. Yeah, no, it is. But <laughs> I'm proudly not cool. But there was a sort of place for your passport, and a place for the pen, and a place for your ticket, and a place for your handkerchiefs. And, you know, everything had a place. And that's still deeply exciting to me. <laughs> but you've created that, but but gorgeous. Um, I think, you know, fashion with function or fashion with purpose, too, because I think that's also important. Because the other thing that I find really interesting about fashion is you do have a platform, I think, to communicate change or, you know, you can inspire people to behave differently. You know, it's very gobby fashion, isn't it? very vocal. And so you do end up with a platform to make a point, you know, which we did with I'm a Plastic Bag. Um, <laughs> I've still got mine. Have you? Good, good. That's the whole point. And, you know, that it was quite, I mean, we set out to try and use the platform of fashion to communicate something that was not sensible and, and damaging for the environment and to show an alternative. And it was sort of beyond our kind of wildest dreams in terms of, of reaction too much, in fact. But it showed to me that you can use fashion to communicate important messages. And I think that's exciting, actually. That feels like um, a privilege, but it also feels a bit like a responsibility. And how do you feel about fashion from the outside as a consumer, as a 52-year-old woman, because so many of the women I spoke to for the book and the women I speak to all the time for the podcast just say, you know, I love fashion. I love clothes. Fashion hates me. Fashion doesn't want me. I think you find your way through. I love fashion. It definitely changes my mood. They always say that, you know, an actor never gets into the, the character of the role until they put the shoes on of the parts. And I think it's true. I, mean, I, I morph depending on what I'm wearing, you know, and there's boardroom me and there's um, fashion party me, there's mother me. There's all these roles that we play all the time. And, and I dress differently for them. I mean, I really do. And sometimes if I've got multi roles in one day, I have to choose which sort of character I want to be in kind of get that outfit and, and so, you know um, fashion yes so certainly I don't think it is very inclusive often in terms of things that work for all age groups all sizes or all needs and that can be that can be really alienating and, and it can be quite mean actually sometimes but I think that we're all quite smart aren't we that we find our way through and you find brands that you love you find beautiful knitwear made in Scotland that actually is so understated but I love I've worn for years and you know there's something that's just it's rather little my secret you find your way through and you, you also go to the forever clothes which I think is really where everyone needs to get to and I think it is all going to be about less but better you know so that we absolutely have fashion and by the way it's a really important industry that employs significant numbers of people mm. it's, you know we, we absolutely don't want to get to the stage where no one's buying anything because what that means is then no one no has any job. jobs and then of course the planet and all the, the massive changes we are going to have to make all of that agenda slips all the way down so you know we need to keep the economy moving and turning and jobs and people employed but just do it in a, in a way that makes sense you know so ideally you rather than buying 10 things from somewhere that don't cost very much buy less and, and spend a bit more you know so it can be as simple as that so that there's no difference in sort of net economic benefit but there is a difference in um, in net damage so I think you know we've all got to think haven't we and, and work our way through that and not have the magnetic pull to the cheapest and, and the least responsible but you know what's interesting I think actually is that a lot of the brands that you might consider to be fast fashion have the biggest power for change because they buy with such numbers that if they say to their supply chain, it has to be something that is not harming the environment through the way it's processed or treated or carbon footprint, whatever it is, if they demand that, 
the suppliers will provide it because they can't afford not to get the business. And I've literally watched this change in my industry where the sort of stands at the leather fairs where we go to find all the right skins and to work with all the tanneries, the ones that are starting, and now it's a big trend things, but when they first started to offer alternatives to polluting skins and tanneries or you know the different routes suddenly they were the sands that were busy and you can see the sands that weren't busy going oh hang on a second it happens very quickly you know people will find a way and the way that we've all adapted to doing all of our businesses online you know people morph very quickly when there's a need you know especially with a financial mm. carrot so it does happen so therefore actually fast fashion has probably more power to affect change often than small brands and many of them are doing great jobs actually so i think we have to be careful not just to be sort of too sort of jingoistic when it comes to talking about fast fashion as just being sort of mm. naturally polluting it's not always the case how did you manage to work in the fashion industry your entire life and sustain a remotely healthy body image <laughs> i don't think i do have a remotely healthy body image truthfully <laughs> i mean who does let's be honest oh. i hate my legs they're so knobbly i'm like i dream of knobbly legs i know i don't have a healthy body image i think that i've got one achilles heel that's probably it but you know you have to make peace you can't spend your whole life feeling uncomfortable about something can you it's just too awful um too tiring and i think you have to surround yourself with people who have similar values to you you know i've made peace with the fact i'm not going to be the thinnest girl on the beach i'm never i mean i never was and i'm never going to be i never forget talking to um you know a very famous model agency the most famous you could argue and she was talking about her models i'm like you know but it's just so hard for all of us who aren't like that and that's you know what's projected the whole time she said yes you have to understand though that models they're not anorexic they just they're like racehorses versus a sort of cart horse and i'm like yeah but if we only ever see images of of racehorses if you're more of a cart horse which yeah. i am but i think what's exciting is that actually the magazine culture of, of old forgive me <laughs> but it's, no i agree <laughs> i agree it's only racehorses and instagram interestingly is not only racehorses and i think there's a lovely sort of new strong messaging of people saying it's unrealistic and so you can therefore choose to curate who you follow and actually I think Instagram whilst it can be hugely damaging can actually uh, have a a role to play actually and and you find your group of people you follow and you know you don't therefore feel so bad if it's if it's always only people that um, don't look like you. I mean, I totally agree. Magazines were much too slow to adapt to that and I definitely think that contributed to their you know their struggles but there was a phase certainly when I was editing where you know, you weren't allowed to do things that were conceived as not commercial and that would jeopardise. Supplying clothes for probably more of the population and talking yeah. about things, be not commercial. I mean, it was a fundamental flaw, I think, if we're honest. And, you know, listen, I'm guilty of this too. You know, if I look at my website, I'm, certainly in terms of, of body size, we're, we're probably not that inclusive. You know, we're all learning. We're all brainwashed, aren't we? I have a 70s mum who, who you know, was always about let's get on a lettuce leaf diet. You know, that was what's important is healthy. That's all that matters. You know, being thin mostly is healthier, but it's finding what's right for your body, isn't it? And making peace with that and, and surrounding yourself with people who are like you, because otherwise you're just going to be in a constant state of feeling bad. And that really is like not fun. I was probably in my late 40s before I you know, woke up to the fact that strong was more important than thin. You know, well, we need time. to keep saying it, even to ourselves, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. You mentioned in the book about having a, a weight app. I have some scales in my bathroom and you can map it against times in your life. And that's really interesting. And for me, food is, is always about stress. It's always about feeling sort of overwhelmed. And I, you know, I think it's quite interesting. So, and you could literally just see it was really obvious that, you know, when I was super busy and feeling exhausted from jet lag and traveling, that's when it would go wrong. So food is emotion, isn't it, ultimately? Yeah, I felt a bit sick when I read that. I can't think of anything. <laughs> I felt where... sick when I realized that, that those, those scales are also sending my weight to my husband's app. That was a bit <laughs> that made me sick. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> so 
I have to ask you, at the beginning of the book, uh, you dedicate it to your hormonal voyages, don't ask, but that is catnip to a journalist. Tell me about the hormonal voyages, Anya. <laughs> it's a it's a group of girlfriends. We have a, a sort of WhatsApp group. And um, it's funny, isn't it? Girlfriends are so important as you get older. I mean, they're important always. And it's funny, I'm sure, you know, you see with your children, and certainly I saw with my daughter, that girls can get quite tricky at sort of certain stages. And I think you get to a stage where you sort of settle on, uh, I've sort of got two or three girl groups that are so precious to me, actually. And I know that I would be there for them through anything and vice versa. And the joy when we get together is palpable. So, yes, so one of them is, is called the Hormonal Voyages, a very, very special group of girls, I'm sure many of whom you know, and it's really precious. And, and we always laugh about you know, having a commune as we get older. But I think having that strength in girlfriends is, as you get older is, is super important to treasure and to, uh, you know, I feel so lucky for it. So, yes, that's that's the Hormonal Voyages. Why are they called the Hormonal Voyages? You neatly sidestepped that, but I'm bringing <laughs> well, you back to it. I think I can't quite remember it. I think it came from a trip that we did where I think there was much chat about hormones, probably. I can't remember anyway. So it was it was the it was a, probably a nod to our age um, although it's a it's a pretty great group of women so um, but no it, yes that's that's why um, and how do you feel about aging you sound quite perky yeah I don't really care terribly in fact I quite like getting older I'm sure there will come a point I remember my father saying to me that he loved getting older until he was about 70 where you know he said because you feel exactly the same which you do so if anyone's 16 listening to this podcast actually I feel the same now and I forget sometimes that I'm so old I have this very weird thing actually where I wake up in the morning before I've sort of completely sort of come to and I, I kind of go, I like my life, it's all kind of good. And I know I'm only 32 and I go, <gasps> I'm not 32. <laughs> 52 Christ it's like sort of time has sort of shot forward so so I think no I, I don't mind getting older I think it's quite fun in many respects I think it would only get sort of unfun if you don't feel sort of fit and and healthy that would be the boring bit and in many senses I think it's easier and if you were 32 you'd have five small kids wouldn't you I know yeah I know I don't think I could go back and do that again <laughs> lovely though it was at the time <laughs> god forbid um have you had menopause uh, I never quite know, really, to be honest. I think probably yes. I've been sort of quite lucky when I sort of had babies and everything. It was all quite, quite sort of straightforward. So you know what's game changing for me to getting older and whether that's linked, I don't know, but it's just walking. The more I move, the better I feel. And so actually the thing that I just do quite religiously now is just get up sort of at 7.30, just been around the park this morning and just do an hour's walk. I do sometimes a tiny run, but not really. And I always have a big fat coffee at the end of it. But you know what? It changes my head. And I think as I get older, I realize I need that more. Perhaps because when you younger your body can kind of cope and disguise the signs but I just know that that makes me feel so much better so there are certain things that I need to do as I get older they, they become really important. So I feel really kind of almost ashamed that it took me so long to work out the movement mental health equation. I think what it is is it's building things in for you that not only do you feel good about the fact that you've done them, so that's a sort of oh, no tick, but also, you know, you have just made all the blood rush around your body. So there's, you know, you've just oxygenated, you've had the fresh air, you've been in nature. For me, I do it with a, with a friend mostly. And so, you know, we've also sort of had that sort of just get everything off our chests and sort of, you know, spit it out, sort it out, look at it and put it back in. It's sort of reassembled, it's sort of reorganized. For me, that's the thing that I have to do. That, that's where I've changed, actually. I need more exercise. And probably also just to really make sure, I think you know, when you're in that sort of tunnel of, of exhaustion, and it is a tunnel of exhaustion with lots of small children. And you know, at one stage, we had five different schools. You know, that's five carol services and five parents, teachers meetings. And it's really quite brutal, when, especially at a time when you're on your busiest in your career and traveling like mad and so on. So it was it was a tough one. And perhaps you're stronger, you can your body can disguise and gloss over the fact that you need that time for you, that weekend off or that that walk that just gives you something back. But as you get older, actually, the, the, the cracks are slightly more visible and I really need that. So I have to build that in. That's non-negotiable. 
Brilliant. Okay, I'm going to ask you the questions that I always ask now. Okay, uh, I'm ready. <laughs> you're braced. Uh, what's your emotional age? Well, 32, isn't it, obviously? Yeah, <laughs> that's <weird. laughs> yeah, if that's your first instinct for in the morning, then I guess I'm going to stay right there. <laughs> what was it about 32, do you think? Absolutely no idea. I need to go jog back and work out sort of how old the kids were and what, what I was doing. No idea at all. Can't answer that question, but it's always 32. Okay. Recommend a book, a book that you've loved recently or a book that's been really significant to you or any book at all? Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I really struggle with time and reading. I try and listen to books mainly. I'm ashamed to say I kind of get home, carry on working, have supper, go to bed, so I'm just useless. But a book that I love and go back to, Do you, have you ever read Dr. Seuss, The Places You Will Go? Um, is one of my most favourite sort of poems, really, to read, uh, which just talks in the most glorious way. And I sort of drummed it into my children's brains a little about, you know, life. You know, you'll have your ups, your downs. It's so beautiful. So I would pick that today as something I would go back to. But I'm afraid I actually have so little time to read that I tend to listen to books or um, tend to um, go to sleep. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so ashamed. <laughs> listening is fine. I think audiobooks are really growing in popularity. I mean, obviously, the whole your whole book is advice. But what one piece of advice would you give, except if in doubt, wash your hair? <laughs> um, you know, I think things lead to things is really important. That if you look at something great that happened to you, and if you trace it back as to how it happened, Often it goes all the way back down like snakes and ladders. If you kind of go backwards, backwards, you know, because you got out of bed that day and decided to go to the shop, you actually bumped into that person who then said, could you help at that? And because you helped at that, you met that person. And because you met that person, they offered you and on it goes. And it resulted in whatever it was that hopefully was a nice outcome. And I think it's really important. I keep telling my kids that just do things because you get luckier if you do. So I would pass that on. I think that's a really good piece of advice. Uh, name an old bird role model. Oh, bird seems a really derogatory term, doesn't it? So I don't want to name them. I um, want to reclaim it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I still, I'm not sure I could I could do that to my my very dear friend. He's, he's about 10 years older than me, but she's just the coolest woman. So I won't name her, but she's a brilliant, brilliant businesswoman. She's an incredible mum, a great wife. She's so hospitable. She's incredibly kind. But we went for a walk the other day, and she, as I arrived, I was five and she had set out coffee and little breakfast snacks <laughs> and she put it in her backpack and lugged it all the way there she's just one of those really kind of people she looks amazing she's fit um and she's fun and she's cool she's a bit irreverent she swears she's good she's good so i'm not going to name her because i don't want to call her an old bird but it's those people in your life who make me think actually aging is fun she's really cool i want to be her yeah, yeah i want to know who that is when i turn the recording off i'm going to ask again <laughs> um what is your superpower i think kindness honestly and you know i think um, keeping your feet on the ground is really important, isn't it? I think if you if you lose kindness, it is a real shame, but it also it catches up with you if you lose that, you know, so stay kind. I think that's really key. Cool. And lastly, how many fucks do you give? Too many, actually. But I don't really apologise for that, actually. You know, I prang if I've done something that when I sort of wake up at five in the morning and I sort of thought, well, did I say that in, in the right way? Or oh, did I forget to send that thank you note? Or, you know, I'm I'm a very bad person at... Sometimes when you're really, really tired and you've agreed to do something, but you actually just know that by doing it, it's going to cost you, you're going to get strep throat because you're absolutely on your knees. It will be so much easier to cancel. But actually, I don't like being that person. So I, yes, too many probably, but um, I don't really apologise for it. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your time. It's been it really so lovely to nice to see you. Right now, if I turn the microphone off, you've got to tell me that person. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday. 
on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time.